Hello, and welcome to the HP Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, so in each episode of this podcast, I work my way through the writings of, of HP Lovecraft. Um, and currently we're looking at some of his stories, specifically his revisions. Now, the last four episodes, we covered the Zelia Bishop revisions, which were all mostly uh, Lovecraft's work. I mean, Zelia Bishop had a hand in them. She provided some of the story ideas, some of the basic structure of the story. Uh, in some cases, at least in the case of The Mound, apparently it was just the, the kind of the catch. The, the core idea was offered by her, but Lovecraft ran with it. But all these, these are, these are mostly Lovecraft stories. There's a little bit more doubt, I guess, with Medusa's Coil, how much Celia Bishop provided to that. It's always hard to know exactly if we don't have any like evidence in the letters to know how much each uh, contributor added to that. But anyways, it's a, these, those are more Lovecraft works, right? So today I'm going to be looking at the first of what I believe are a handful of, no, maybe it's just the, no, I think it's just the one, uh, of revisions that Lovecraft worked on with Henry S. Whitehead. Um, so he was a, a contributor to Weird Tales, like many of the people that Lovecraft collaborated with in these revisions. Uh, this story is called The Trap. There is another story that's been proffered as a <clears throat> as a Lovecraft collaboration called Bothan, and that's also by Henry S. Whitehead. Um, but you know, my what I looked around, and it seems that that's, that's that's not much. If anything, Lovecraft may have just provided an idea or did a little bit of proofreading. You know, it's not really a Lovecraft work. It, it might be interesting to look at, and perhaps I should at some point, but I'm going to not. Um, take the time to look on that. I'm going to instead, um, after looking at the trap in this episode, <clears throat> close up uh, this section, this series uh, of the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club and move on to, I guess, the next series and the next season, if you want to think of it that way, in which I'll jump back into some of his nonfiction writing, specifically the mostly the fourth volume of the Selected Letters. I might also touch on the fifth volume of the Selected Letters, which I don't have, but I have notes on. It'll be like... <clears throat> my coverage of the first letter, first volume of the selected letters, where I had looked at them, I'd taken notes on them, but I didn't, you know, make a copy. And I really regret it. And, um, <clears throat> I, I kick myself every day for not being a good pirate <clears throat> and copying it. But anyways, I'll, I'll probably be able to talk about that for one episode or so based on my notes. So that that's coming up, and it's possible I might want to jump, get my feet wet a little bit with, uh, with the Robert E. Howard letters. Uh, I'd really like to do that. Uh, that might be its own series, though, when I wrap up everything. So after that, so that will be a couple months worth of episodes, probably. Um, and then we're going to move on to looking at the final stories that he published under his name. Dreams of the Witch House, Haunter in the Dark, um, Thing on the Doorstep, those, those final stories he published under his name. And then that just leaves the rest of the revisions. So that's kind of where this is going. So we're coming to the end of the H.P. Lovecraft Book Club. Uh, although some people have been writing me and contacting me on Twitter saying, you know, you really got to look at uh, these other letters or you really got to, you know, look at this short story or, you know, look at this revision, like the Eddie revisions, which I don't think are Lovecraft revisions really, but people... I think I should, you know, jump in and do those. <clears throat> so I don't know. I I'll I'll see how much energy I have for a cleanup when I get done. But but we are getting towards the end of this 
this series. Still, you know, several months to go, but but we can kind of see the end coming. Um, I think I've said enough about Lovecraft. I guess that's my kind of feel about this. Yeah, if I'm going to be a true completionist, there's, of course, other things I could talk about. Um, but does it add much at some point? Is it just obnoxious um, to to dig deeper into it, right? Uh, and this is kind of an, this episode will be an example of where it, you can kind of feel that tedious, how it can be a bit tedious at times. Because this story is not that great. It's not very memorable. I don't think too many Lovecraft readers think much of the story or have said much about it. All the revisions have something interesting in them, but they are of mixed quality and they don't all have the same spark. I mean, especially after coming off the Zelia Bishop revisions, which are also great and meaningful and full of Lovecraftian lore and full of uh, ideas. Uh, there's a little bit here that is just interesting, but the ideas I think are kind of muddled. The, you know, it doesn't really quite grab you the way some of the, the Bishop revisions and the other stories he was writing around this time did. Um, you know, so whatever. Um, I'll say a few words about the trap and, and put an end to this episode. This is gonna, probably going to be a, a short one. I know I say that a lot. But in this case, I think I, I really, it really will end up being a short episode. Um, actually, it took me a while to get back into recording these just because I, I just became one of those, you know, stories that happens from time to time where it's just like, oh, I just don't feel like recording about this. I just don't, you know, maybe I should just skip it. But um, I decided not to. It'll give me a chance to maybe prep and, and think, you know, set up a little bit of what's coming up like I just did. Um, but I also think some people might want to read this because there are a few interesting bits in the trap. Although, um, you know, it's not it's not by far the most important of the of his of his revisions. <clears throat> it is notable, I guess. One thing to say about this is this is one of the final Whitehead stories that he, he ever wrote because he died in 1932. So this was written in 1931. Um and it was published in Strange Tales of Mystery and Terror, not in Weird Tales, but in a different magazine at the time, which seems to have been uh, f building off the Weird Tales market uh, in March of 1932. So as I said, this will be the last story I'm going to look at for a little while as I, as I get back into the letters. So um, basically, uh, the stories about well, our narrator... So our narrator is thinking about it's some Thursday in November, that's the time stamp we get, is looking at his ancient Copenhagen mirror. So this is, uh, um, I mean, there might be some interesting geography here. There is some cool geography in the story, actually, where it's set, because it has this connection to the East Indies or the West Indies, uh, but also Europe and, and you know, the American West is, is referenced in this story, too. So there's kind of a geographical kind of some interesting things going on here. I don't think the authors play enough with this and, and do enough to really explore this. I, I think actually when I first skimmed over the story after reading Medusa's Coil, I thought, oh, gosh, we're going to get some more. We're going to get some East Indies stuff. It's going to build off the cool stuff in Medusa's Coil. And it was like really disappointing when we didn't get like more voodoo and more of that kind of stuff. It's just the... That connection doesn't really seem to matter too much. Anyways, he he's looking at this mirror um, and he's thinking about it. But that's sort of it. He just kind of ponders on it and its origins. And then 
later, just like the next paragraph, he's like, it's like years later, he's teaching as a as a private tutor. Um, we don't actually see Lovecraft's characters. Again, this is Whitehead writing the, the early part of the story, so it's not really Lovecraft. But we don't see many of his characters really have jobs. I, it's not a very common thing in his stories. I've, I've been rereading a lot of Stephen King lately because I, I still want to connect a lot of the stuff to Stephen King if I have the energy to do that. That may be how we can kind of rejuvenate my interest in this this podcast once I'm, you know, done with the stories in the last set of revisions is maybe do some essays where I really kind of explore some of the, the differences and relationships and thematic connections and really the thematic divergences between King and, and Lovecraft. Um, but one big difference is that King's characters always have jobs, right? They, good or bad, they tend to be, you know, of the working class. You know, sometimes you have successful writers showing up there, but they're, they're working writers. Um, you know, here we have a character who's a teacher, right? Which I can't think of many, if any, examples of teachers showing up in any of Lovecraft's stories. But he's working at this uh, um, private school uh, in Connecticut. And one of, the, one of the boys, one of the students, his name is Robert Grandison, um, you know, spies the mirror. It's in his office or in his house. I think it's in, in the apartment or something that he goes. Yeah, he, he goes to his uh, apartment, you know, like office hours kind of thing, um, and sees the mirror and becomes interested in it. And he's kind of, he, he's interested in this like weird facet of it. Quote, um, quote, at last I quietly asked him what had had attracted his attention. Slowly and still wearing the puzzled frown, he looked over and replied rather cautiously, it's the corrugations in the glass, or whatever they are, Mr. Cavanagh. I was noticing how they all seem to run from a certain point. Look, I'll show you what I mean. So at this point, he, he touches the glass. He puts uh, his like, finger on the glass to kind of touch it, and the mirror sort of pulls his finger in. right? And this produces a change in the mirror. Quote, unmistakably, from that particular angle, all of the many whirls in the ancient glass appeared to converge like a large number of spread strings held in one hand and radiating out towards the, the, the in streams. So the mirror is like interacting with people who touch it, right? Which why our narrator didn't know it had this ability or if it's just because this boy is kind of special to them. Uh, that doesn't seem to be the case actually, but, um, but that's, that's all for that meeting. But, um, Robert's like really kind of curious about this. Um, and he even like does a very uh, uh, cliche kind of looking back at the mirror as he's leaving the room. And the narrator is like, oh, he seems to be really be interested in that mirror. Better keep an eye on him. But anyways, before he can like keep an eye on or lock away the mirror or, or investigate it himself, uh, this boy disappears. He vanishes. He doesn't show up for like morning roll call one day at the dorms. And so once he's visited, then, you know, there's, you know, what to do. It's, it's kind of a scandal for like a boarding school to lose a kid, obviously. It's going to affect their, their accreditation. It's going to affect their relationship with parents. Uh, and it's, you know, it's around Christmas vacation, too. So it's a bit, they're a bit wondering, like, is this, maybe he just went home early. What's up with him? But they have to find the kid, right? You can't lose a kid if you're a, a school. So then he starts having these dreams. Our narrator starts having dreams pretty, pretty much right away. Uh, quote, that I should be receptive of such a notion. 
um, that Grandison was still alive was the notion. That I should be still be receptive of such a notion will not seem strange to those who know my long residence in the West Indies and my close contact with the unexplained happenings there. It will not seem strange either that I fell asleep with this urgent desire to communicate some sort of mental communication with the missing boy. Even the most prosaic scientists affirm with Freud, Jung, and Alder that the subconscious mind is most open to external impressions in sleep, thought such impressions are seldom carried over intact into the waking state. Um, which is interesting. This is, uh, I don't know if this is still Whitehead writing or if Lovecraft was taken over by this point, but that's certainly something that, that Lovecraft was interested in. That is dreams, right? Dreams is a very much a factor of his, of his work. And he starts to have dreams and he starts to feel and sense he's getting messages from Robert. But there's this problem of you, you don't remember your dreams, right? You don't keep touch of them. That's, that's what a thing I, I, you know, Lovecraft, his characters tend to remember their dreams, right? Or the dreams have a big effect on them. They're not just, they're not ephemeral. Maybe, uh, you know, if Lovecraft was writing that, maybe the dreams wouldn't have been as, as ephemeral or problematic. But... We get enough, though. We get enough that he's actually able to see Robert, sees Robert in the dreams. Uh, and he seems to get a message from Robert as well. But he can't really remember what it is. And that, that I think, is... Uh, that's very realistic. I mean, I just took a little bit of a nap. Uh, I've been having trouble sleeping at night lately. Um, took a half day, slept from like 2 to 4 p.m., got up, did some other things, and started this podcast... But I was dreaming like nuts, and I don't remember any of those dreams, even just a couple hours later. So it's, it's true to life for me anyways. I dream a lot, but I just don't remember them. I got to start taking notes, I think. I know people who do that tend to have a better time remembering their dreams. But anyways, he thinks he starts to get uh, uh, messages from Robert, and he comes to a conclusion pretty rapidly in the story. And I think we're not even halfway into the story yet, close to halfway, but it's, it's still in the first third or so of the story. He comes to the conclusion that the mirror is a trap, and it's trapped the soul of Robert Grandison. It's trapped actually more than the soul of the body and everything of Robert Grandison. Quote, it was more than a mirror. It was a gate, a trap, a link with spatial recesses not meant for the Denzians of our visible universe and realizable only in terms of the most intricate non-Euclidean mathematics. And in some outrageous fashion, Robert Grandinson had passed out of our ken into the glass and was immured waiting for release. So anyways, uh, not to spend too much time on this, he's able to start to piece together through his dreams that there's other entities in the mirror. There's other beings, other human beings trapped in the, this mirror. Um, there's a little bit here in race, I should just say, because it is an international group of souls or bodies that have been trapped by this mirror um quote various others all in ancient garb were there with him a corpulent middle-aged gentleman with tied queue and velvet knee breeches who spoke english fluently through with a masked scandinavian accent a rather beautiful small girl with very blonde hair which appeared a glossy dark blue two apparently mute negroes whose features contrasted grossly grotesquely with their pallor of the reverse colored skins and three men one young one small one young woman, a very small child, almost an infant, and a lean elderly Dane of ex extremely distinction and aspect and a kind of half-malign intellectu intellectuality of con continence. And that last person mentioned there, the Dane, is Axel Holm, who's going to be very crucial in the end of the story. He's the builder of the, of the mirror. Now, inside the mirror, 
it's kind of like a four, it's described as a fourth dimension. Um, things, different things happen. One is everyone's inverted. Everyone's uh, like they're, if they're light, left-handed, they're now right-handed. You know, everything's sort of flipped that way. I guess left and right are I guess flipped in that. Colors change, uh, become more muted. So the blue becomes yellows. Gray trousers stay gray though. So everything kind of you know, the color becomes more like a film, right? So it's, it's, it's almost like it's get, you get translated to a black and white film, um, but with very, very much, not quite black and white, but with muted colors. The bright colors get, get faded. I don't know if mirrors do that. I mean, I've, maybe, <laughs> maybe some type of mirrors can do that kind of thing. Or, but it, there's some imagination here in imagining what the world inside a mirror would be like. In terms of, it, of course, it would be a reflection, It'd be things would be opposite, but other aspects of it are kind of decently thought out. It's kind of interesting. There are some interesting things in the story. It just didn't grab me, but I think it might be interesting for others. Um, he's able to travel around the mirror world. He gets into some of the physics of this. Quote, quote, passage from one definite scene to another involves sort of gliding through a region of shadow or blurred focus, where the details of each scene mingled curiously. All the vistas were distinguished by the absence of transient objects and the indefinite or ambiguous appearance of such semi-transparent objects as furniture or the details of vegetation, end quote. Now, what I'm kind of imagining, it doesn't really explore this, but what I'm sort of imagining is like if the mirror is like in one place, it's not traveling around. So what's the mirror's reflecting is what would be in the, this fourth dimension, but maybe in some other format, right? Reversed colors muted but maybe in some other way flattened maybe maybe kind of shadowy but it would be there but if you were to like turn the mirror to a forest that's what you would have in the in the mirror world right that's that's kind of how i guess i would do it i think which might allow for some interesting kind of story elements but anyways that's not really explored too much but there is some about how travel is done in the mirror uh what it's like living in the mirror but we get to when we get to this character Axel Holm, we, we start to find we, we learn that he's the builder, um, and we get his backstory, um, which is he's the most interesting aspect of the story I think is this builder, because um, he's essentially built uh, Loki's looking glass. Quote: Holm was born early in the 17th century and had followed with tremendous competence and success the trade of a glass blower and molder in Copenhagen. His glass, especially in the form of a large drawing room mirrors, was always at a premium. But the same bold mind which had made him the first glazier of Europe also served to carry his interests and ambitions far beyond the sphere of mere material craftsmanship. He had studied the world around him and chafed at the limitations of human knowledge and capability. Eventually he sought for dark ways to overcome these limitations and gain more success than is good for any mortal. End quote. So he's kind of like Joseph Kerwin here. So uh, we've seen this idea of using magic in this case, it's kind of a tech, but it's still rooted in magic to trap souls so he can like acquire their knowledge. Now, not everyone here is, is equally distinguished. That's why I mentioned kind of there seems to be, you know, whoever gets trapped here is, ends up trapped there. But it, I don't know if he can pick who goes into the mirror. I, you know, was Robert Grandinson chosen on purpose because of some ability? Um but it also, the, the mirror also gives him immortality, so it gives him more times to study. So maybe it's just a byproduct. He's trapping himself in a way so he can be immortal, and the trapping of others is just incidental. But anyways, he kind of reminds me of Joseph Kerwin in this way.
In fact, we're told that like, for many years, like for 50 years, the only people in there were him and his slaves. Those were the only, that's why there were some African people of African descent there right away. These were actually Holmes slaves from, you know, from when he was, you know, in the living world. Um, but anyways, he had this life and he eventually was able to bring others into, into this mirror. Um, anyways, eventually our narrator is able to escape with, with, uh, with Robert Grandinson, uh, and he's able to come up with an excuse about where he'd been. So there wouldn't be too much suspicion from the parents or from the school. So that's all wrapped up pretty nicely. Um, it's. It's something I think I, I've learned from reading the letters that Lovecraft actually thought about and worried about. It's like whenever you've all watched horror movies and you're like, well, that doesn't make much sense. As soon as the police come, all of you survivors are going to jail or you have to explain all this stuff. <clears throat> you know, or, you know, there's that with, with the day after uh, problem in, in a lot of horror films and horror stories. Um, but Lovecraft was definitely worried about that, right? That's why he liked the dynamite. You know, that's, he talked about this in a letter to, I think it was Clark Ashton Smith about this need to blow up the tunnels under Tempest Mountain in Lurking Fear. Uh, not just because he wants to abolish the past, but you need to have some way of, of sealing the story. Because if these things really exist, they'll eventually get out. It's the modern world, right? You can't keep it hidden. I mean, there's no smoke, smoke, cigarette smoking man is not gonna come and clean up the site uh, of Tempest Mountain. Eventually, the media and the media is in that story, right? So eventually, it'll get out. So you had to sort of destroy it. Same thing with Innsmouth and other places. In, I used to think, and I think both are true, but I used to think really the destruction of a place like Innsmouth was all about um, this kind of need to destroy that otherness, that that knowledge, because it's just so dangerous, right? And I still think that's true to a degree, but I think part of it is also Lovecraft tying his stories into a knot and saying, you know, into a nice package saying, you know, okay, what can we do with Innsmouth? If Innsmouth is there, eventually these deep ones are going to get out and someone else is going to visit Innsmouth. That bus goes there every day. Someone else is going to figure this out. Um, so by destroying it, we can both have them be the target of this repression and make it plausible that, that there are narrators, the only one who's going to possibly know what's there. I think I talked about that in the episode on the Shadow of Innsmouth a little bit. Um, but anyways, he gets him out. Now, um, the rest of the story really involves kind of the aftermath of this um, and, and really getting into the mythology of this. What is this mirror, right? And he, so he starts to investigate this a little bit. Quote, there are, in addition, at least two lines of rather more positive evidence, which, of which comes through my researches in Danish annals concerning the sorcerer, Axel Holm. Such a person indeed left many traces in folklore and written records and diligent library sessions, plus conferences with various learned Danes have shed much more light on his evil fame. At present, I need only to say that in Copenhagen, that the Copenhagen glass board, born in 12, 1612, was a notorious Luciferian whose pursuits and final vanishing formed a matter of odd debate over two centuries ago. He was burned with the desire to know all things and to conquer the limitations of mankind, to which end he had delved deeply into occult and forbidden fields such, since he was a child. Now, this stuff's really good. Now, this stuff apparently was written by Lovecraft. So 
you know, I think the opening part of the story is, is weaker than the end. And that's not just praising Lovecraft because he apparently wrote the end of, uh, second half of the story. I do think it ends stronger than it begins. It begins with just kind of a very cliche story about a, a mirror that is a different world, right? Through the looking class. It's not actually a very um, original thought. But this character, Holm, kind of lifts it, lifts the stories in my mind a little bit because it is a Joseph Kerwin character. It's a great Lovecraft villain. Um, quote, he had few interests and objectives. He had a strange interest in objectives, few of which were definitely known, but some of which were recognized as intolerably evil. It is recorded that his two Negro helpers, originally slaves from the Danish West Indies, had become mute soon after their acquisitions by him and that they had disappeared not long before his own disappearance from the ken of mankind. End quote. Um, so again, we see it again with Joseph Kerwin experimenting on slaves. It's, it's, a, it's very similar. Now, the mythology behind this, I don't think it's, it's saying that it is like Loki's looking glass, um, but it's somehow connected to it. This is what our narrator writes. This mirror, according to popular tales, the trophy as potent in its way as the better known Aegis of Minerva or Hammer of Thor was a small oval object called Loki's glass, made of some polished, fusible mineral and having magical properties which included the divination of the immediate future and the powers to show the possessor as enemies. That it had a deeper potential properties, realizable in the hands of an erudite magician, none of the common people doubted, end quote. So anyways, this is how he made the glass. He, he took this, this mirror, which mythology said is Loki's glass, and was able to use this. So that's kind of the deeper mythology here. And I don't know of any other stories where Lovecraft feeds on like Norse mythology in this way. It's not something he was primarily interested in. I think he, he you know, said a lot more about like American mythology uh, in stories like uh, it comes up in Curse of Yeg and uh, the Transmigration of Juan Romero. He's got his own mythology created, but but connecting it to Norse mythology, it's it's obviously a good thing to do. It it fits together in his overall idea that all these traditions are sort of connected together into these deeper horrors, this deeper cosmic horror. Um, I'm only going to say, though, that this is the first I heard about Loki's looking glass. I mean, maybe I go dig into Neil Gaiman's book of Norse mythology and see, you know, maybe it's something I missed. Maybe it's there. Um, mythology always has a lot of interesting stories, though, so it's, it's important to read it and keep up on that stuff, especially for stories like this. But anyways, that's the the trap. It's okay. It doesn't have the punch, I think, of the Zelia Bishop revisions. Uh, it kind of starts out pretty slow. But I think where it really gets interesting is when you, you meet this character home. I think that's the most fascinating part of the story. Um, and it does sort of, you see a lot of parallels with the case of Charles Dexter Ward, I think. Especially, and, and I, I think the connection, the, there is something important about slavery here, about the misuse of enslaved men and women, just like we saw in Charles Dexter Ward, written, you know, five years, four or five years before this. Six years almost? Wow. Anyways, that's going to be it. So um, next episode, I'll jump into the first letters uh, in the fourth volume of the Selected Letters. I glanced at that I, in the previous series on the letters. I, the way I did it is I did 20 letters at a time. I think I'm going to keep that pace, but that will be 10 episodes or so with the last episode being not, not exactly 20, 
Um, so we'll have nine episodes where I look at 180 letters, and then whatever's left will be in the final episode of that series. And I'll do what I did last time, too, by really breaking up my discussion into you know, different correspondence. So for each 20-letter segment, I'll look at all the letters to maybe August Arleth or Vernon Shea or whatever, whoever he looks at. I'll look at them individually rather than letter after letter chronologically. That will let us, that, that I found was a better way of getting at the themes because uh, you could actually see, follow the conversation a little bit more. Now, these are all one-handed conversations, so you don't have the letters from the other way like we do with the Robert E. Howard collection that I have, The Means to Freedom. So in that, we'll be able to talk about Howard Lovecraft, Howard Lovecraft, back and forth, um, which I'm really excited to do. Uh, in fact, these letters are almost just training, you know, calisthenics for getting to that that project. Um, but I'm going to do that. So you can expect probably about 11 more episodes on the, the selected letters because uh, I'll go through the selected letters four, and then I'll do one quick episode where I'll look at my notes about the selected letters uh, volume five. Unless someone can find me a copy and send it over to me, then I'll reverse course and, and do that more systematically too. Definitely, I think those must be a really a lot of great letters. As I remember, there are some great ones. Themes we can look forward to, talking about the Great Depression, the rise of fascism. Um, yeah, those are the big ones. The New Deal, right? Because I think it's like 32, 33 or so is the date that the, third, the fourth volume begins. So we'll definitely uh, think about those things. Uh, it's often seen as a time where Lovecraft seems to have uh, changed his views on some things. Not everything, obviously, but maybe softened some of his approaches just to some of his criticisms of modernity um, and things like that in the context of the rise of fascism. Of course, his own flirting with fascism is something we need to think about and, and, and consider seriously. Um, it shows up in... You know, like the Robert E. Howard letters a lot, too. So actually, these, these correspond with the height of the Robert E. Howard Lovecraft correspondence, too. So a lot of the letters in this fourth volume are to Howard, uh, which we'll look at all those letters um, in more detail when we get to the Means of Freedom text. So uh, we'll just mention those letters. But there's a lot of them here, so that's one important aspect. Um, it's a good set. It's, it's a really, a lot of... Interesting ideas are bandied about in that volume. So anyways, that's it for this, this series of, of, essay, of art, uh, episodes on Lovecraft's writings. From, I think it was like, from, what, from 28 to 31? Uh, it covered, uh, of course, Shadow of Innsmouth, At the Mountains of Madness, Whisper in Darkness, three huge tales, and it covered a huge revision in the mound, so we haven't looked at that many stories, actually, but it seems we've been doing this for a long time because these stories have been, uh, they've been pretty beefy. They've been pretty important stories. Uh, things will speed up, though. When we get back to stories a little bit later on, we got a whole bunch of revisions, but they tend to be shorter. And we got, uh, I think, five more stories he published under his name, and they're all relatively short. Dreams of the Witch House might be the longest of them. Um, it's good. They're great stories. Some of my favorite, but... Uh, uh, not as long. So uh, that's coming up. Um, so it's going to be fun. Uh, so we're rolling down the hill. We're, we're going, we're getting towards the end of this, this read through. Um, but still a lot of great stuff coming up, I hope. So I look, f looking forward to starting to give you my thoughts about the selected volume number 
Selected Letters number four, volume four. I've already started reading them, and I'm pretty excited about it. So uh, that's going to be it for now. Um, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.